Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Welcome to the following on podcast from Talk Sport. I'm John Norman and today bringing you a special show and a book review. Uh, I'm joined by author, uh, celebrated author, Gideon Haig to talk about the release of a biography 20 years in the making. It's called Sultan. It's a memoir of Wazim Akram and uh, it's a book that uh, really lifts the lid on a story that has never been properly told. No topic is uh, out of uh, bounds or off limits. Uh, he discusses uh, his addiction to cocaine following at the end of uh, a hugely successful career, uh, his diagnosis of diabetes, the uh, tragic circumstances surrounding the death of his first wife, as well as uh, talking about the match-fixing allegations, which really have provided the backdrop, an unwelcome one, throughout his long and storied career. Plenty of high points as well. The 1992 World Cup final win at the MCG. A brilliant career for Lancashire in the county championship uh, in a county where he went on to make his home, as well as uh, plenty of individual and team successes against the very best nations in world cricket along the way. Uh, The book is called Sultan, a memoir of Wazim Akram. And for the next half an hour or so, I'm delighted to say I'm in the company of its author, Gideon Haig. Story of the day. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to, to say that uh, Gideon Haig is with me now, live from Melbourne. Um, we're both keeping an eye on the third ODI between England and Australia, rather Australia and England, um, but only one eye because we all know Australia going to win and the series doesn't matter. But what does matter is uh, you've got a new book out, Gideon. Sultan, a memoir uh, with a Wazim Akram. Um, look, it's a dizzying book. I've read it 
it's brilliant as as uh, as you'd expect. Anything written by you usually is. But I tell you what, it's one of those books where I read it through. I read it in a couple of days and I almost felt I needed to go back and read it all over again because <laughs> it's dizzying in a way that it's almost yeah. impossible to keep up with the changes in personnel at the top of the PCB, changes in captaincy, changes in ODI series, changes in names of series, changes in team personnel. I mean, this must have been a hell of a book to write and a hell of a book to research well plus a change john crazy schedules back in the 1990s as well as today uh we're confronting many of the same difficulties you're right uh, it is it could be confusing at times in addition of course it's more than 20 years old so uh it, 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 there's the additional um the, the generational time gap but I think that's actually what gives it its value in a way. Very few cricketers wait so long to write their autobiography. In the main, they either write them mid-career or they write them in the immediate aftermath when they've barely taken their pads off in some ways. They haven't really stopped thinking like a cricketer. Half of them is still out there. Waz waited almost two decades to tell his story. And he had no sort of compelling financial reason to do so. I think as as he explained it to me, he, he has two boys now from his first wife who are, who are in their 20s, and he has a seven-year-old daughter with his second wife, Shanira, who'd have no memory of him playing cricket at all. They've grown up around him knowing their father is famous, but not knowing what for. Uh, so he felt some sort of pressing need to explain himself to his own kith and kin, and also perhaps to reintroduce him to uh, to contemporary cricket audiences who have grown up with uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a fixed idea or fixed associations where Wasm is concerned. Uh, there's no ducking away from it. Um, his association with the match-fixing crises of, of the 1990s continues to dog his reputation, even though I suspect a lot of what we now think we know is relies on persistent reinforcement of the same set of received ideas it wasn't really until I went back to review what we knew or what we thought we knew about match fixing that I realized how little we probably did know yeah and see I've always had a bit of a difficult relationship with Wazim Akram in my own personal world firstly because I'm a Surrey fan so Wako Yunus was my man Wazzy Macro yeah, yeah. played for Lancashire. So, you know, I had that kind of situation. But the other situation was similar to what you just mentioned, and you use the word fixed there. Look, I find cricket's relationship with its history of match fixing to be baffling and at times offensive. You know, we have a T20 World Cup where you could have a player like Shakib Bahasan playing for Bangladesh, a guy that was banned for two years for his mm. league, not reporting approaches. And yet it won't even be mentioned. doesn't even come into the conversation when he is taken to the field. I, f- I think that's wrong. And similarly, I've always felt with Wazim that it's wrong for him to arrive on our screens every time Pakistan play in this country and no mention be made of the allegations ab- about him. It's, it's, it's a strange world to live in. Um, but I think there are allegations. I, I think they're, they're, they're very persistent and they're very adhesive and... Uh, 
perhaps you don't see them on the screen, but they um they point him around on social media very, very um, uh, obdurately. But don't Uh, you think they should be on the screen? Because that essentially, you know, you can find anything on on social media if you so wish. But I don't you think it should be mentioned, or don't you think it should be part of the on-screen narrative? Well, if if it if it's to be part of the on-screen narrative, then surely should, people should actually go and look at what the Kaim report actually says. I mean, how long since you've actually read it, and and how many of those allegations were actually substantiated, and how many of them depended on hearsay, and how many of them were influenced by what I think emerges as a very strong theme in the book, is the acute power vacuum that opened up in Pakistan cricket in the wake of the retirements of first Imran Khan and then Javed Miandad. Now, Wazim was the first captain to be put in to fill that breach in 1993 when he was a rather callow young man of 26 who'd never captained a team in any form of cricket before, uh, given very little support. Because, of course, at that time, there are no there are no coaches, there are no entourages around to protect the players at the time. He was really left like a shag on a rock. Uh, and the team very quickly began machinating against him. There were a lot of very ambitious players in that Pakistan team at the time. And, of course, the trumping up of an allegation of match-fixing was a very, very quick and easy way to incapacitate or incommode a rival to the captaincy. And I think that's one of the things that we failed to appreciate when we came up with our sort of first-world apprehensions of match-fixing at the time. We tended to think along the lines of, well, bloody, f- they're all cheats, aren't they? I, I think partly as a, as a result of the uh, of the hangover from the ball tampering allegations against Pakistan in in nineteen ninety two. Uh, when I went back and I, uh, I actually, in, in some respects, I had the same issues as you when I sat down to write this book, and I thought, well, here's a good opportunity for me to revisit my assumptions about this period. Uh, the Kayum report was very wide, very sweeping, uh, very casual in the way it bandied allegations around, did not establish anything to a standard of judicial proof, and really ended up with very, very few things decided. If you look at the conclusions that are actually drawn about Wasm at the end of that report, really Kayum ends up saying, I've just heard so many rumours that I think that Wasm should be fined. But I can't, I can't prove anything. None of the allegations that were made against them were actually proven. I'm just saying, on the basis of there being lots of smoke, there has to be some fire. Therefore, I'm going to find him just to, just to set him straight, just to put him right. Uh, that's not a satisfactory standard of justice for any player, let alone a great player. And it's been a very heavy taint for Wasm to, to carry around since then. Exactly. I told, this, is, this is exactly the point. I've always lent on the Kayan report in the same way. I've thought, I've thought, and I hadn't read it, but I thought, well, if this is what has been said, I have to, uh, I have to respect the Pakistani judicial process. So why, why is this not being mentioned, you know, forevermore? Now, of course, it's not a judicial process. It wasn't a court. It was a commission of inquiry that was constituted by the PCB. Uh, and, yeah. You know, a lot of it was a very undisciplined court it held multiple hearings over a very long period of time it ended up being subject to all sorts of external influences of course and it was then presented 
it was then presented to the government at the same time as a military coup took place in Pakistan. So it basically sat there for the next nine months, no one knowing exactly what to do with it. It, it, it's a, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I did the book, because I'm absolutely fascinated by Pakistan cricket. You know, it is influenced by all sorts of externalities that we can never really comprehend from, from our vantage points. Uh, and the, the ability to survive day to day in Pakistan cricket, particularly in this period where I don't, players are very poorly managed, they're very poorly led, they're very poorly administered. Uh, it is amazing that Wasm has actually lived to tell the tale, quite frankly. The book starts, and, and this is another, you know, theme throughout. You can't move away from, from exactly what you're talking about. The world that these players very often come from to the one that they <laughs> go on to inhabit and, and exist within. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible feat from Wazim Akram. It's testament to his abilities as a cricketer that he was able to essentially be one of the first names on the team sheet for such a long period of time when you consider the greats, the great bowlers and the great players that he played yeah. alongside. But the, the book starts with a return to his hometown, doesn't it? And it's, you know, it really does. It's, it's a brilliant technique. I, I love the way it starts. You know, it's a 20-minute visit because... In Wazim's experience of being going back home in Pakistan, you've got 20 minutes before word spreads and then you've got to get the hell out of Dodge. But it's what that does, it just sets in place a reminder throughout. And there's so many little tidbits from um, his brothers donating seven bags of rice when he took seven wickets against a touring New Zealander team to um, the fact that his captain at the time was telling him, or I think it was, he was playing in his first or second match and his captain was saying, bowl a Yorker, bowl a Yorker. And he didn't even know what a Yorker was. <laughs> to, to other little tidbits, like I think it was Mushtaq Ahmed, who when he made his debut for Pakistan, didn't, he'd never been in an elevator, never been in yeah. a lift before. And it's yeah. this kind of little little nuggets that, is, that enriches the story and gives you gives you an idea of, that you really don't know the man. You really don't know where he comes from when you're looking from Western eyes. And you've done a lot of interviews for this book, I'm sure. And match fixing, I imagine, is the first one from a Western perspective. But but the revelations in regard to his drinking, um, there was a great story as well when he, he goes to Lancashire and he's in the pub with Neil Fairbrother yeah. and the team and he's, he's drinking a pint of milk, you know. that. But that changed, didn't it? And he admits to drinking. He admits to smoking marijuana and actually gets in trouble with the police in the West Indies. Yep. And then, of course, there's the cocaine addiction. I think we can use that word later on yep. in his career. Now, that's their big stories. That's big, big in any world. But in the Muslim world, I imagine, well, not I imagine, it is. That's, that, that, that must be, that, it takes some balls for Wazim Akram to admit that, essentially knowing his audience. It did, actually. I mean, it, um, I think two two or three weeks ago when the book first came out, uh, he was the number one Google news topic in the world as people began to share the stories, uh, some of which were divulged in Sultan. Um, <laughs> I'm not used to this heady sort of company. Uh, Wasim is. Wasim does know uh, his public. He knows how sort of potentially volatile his position is. But I think this goes to his credit. He he knew what he was doing when he when he confided these things. But he also reasoned that if he wasn't prepared to be completely straightforward about it, then there was really no point in undertaking the effort. And I think that's one of the reasons why this book benefits from the 20 year time gap. You know, part of him has been able to step back. Part of him has been able to calm down. 
part of him's been able to understand his career in the context of his country and in the context of his team and in the context of his residual fame. And with that's become a degree of maturity and self-reflection, which I don't think is, is common in cricket autobiographies. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's one of the reasons why this, when I put the book down, I, I felt like I had to go back and read it again because there's so much to it. Um, let's, let's just focus on some of the tragedy to start with. And we will, we will end on some of the more positive lights, but you know, the death of his former wife, of his first wife, sorry. Um, in truly, I mean, I, I mean, that, that was a, that was after I read the book, a couple of days after I was, you have to read the book to really get the, the gravity, the, the full effect, I suppose. But essentially his, his wife died very young in truly tragic circumstances, essentially whilst they were on board a flight on the way to getting better medical aid. And, and yeah. I, I don't know whether it was in, whilst he talks about the grief of losing his first wife, there must have been some trauma associated with being in that situation. You can't think of more, uh, I can't think of too many more extremely and emotional, torturous situations the one he found himself in on board that flight with his wife essentially having a cardiac arrest in front of him. Yes, I was. Talk- I spoke to Neil Fairbrother about it actually, and uh, and he said that Wasim was one of the first people that, that that he called was Neil, but Neil said he was making absolutely no sense at all. Neil could not understand a word that he was saying. He was in such an altered state. I think that Wasim goes on harboring a great degree of guilt about uh, about his first wife's death, in the sense that, of course, for quite a lot of their marriage, he was an absentee father. Um, an absentee husband. Uh, he devoted himself wholeheartedly to his cricket. Huma was a very intelligent and very accomplished woman in her own life who made huge sacrifices for uh, for the sake of uh, Wasim's career and never really got the opportunity to spread her own wings. She's dearly beloved by her uh, by um, their neighbours in, uh, in Altrincham in, in Manchester. They still talk about her very highly. I, I, I spoke to them. And it was it was very tough actually uh sitting in his living room in melbourne as we, as we talked this through um it's 15 years since she died but in some respects uh he's never quite got over it i, I don't think anyone really gets the, over the loss of of such a significant personal other um and it's something that his second wife has had to deal with the fact that there is this abiding memory uh, and and affection towards the first wife. She's a very remarkable woman in her own right, Shanira Akram. She's Australian, and uh, they've been married since 2014, and they have this uh, this, this young daughter. Um, extremely compassionate, um, extremely forthright, intelligent, and poised in in her own life. But it, it would take someone with a with a good deal of fortitude to walk in Humar's shadow. Two other aspects to to Wazim's life away from the cricket ground. Firstly, the um, realization, the diagnosis that he suffers from diabetes. And yes. um, I was interested to see just scrolling through Twitter. I think Wazim Akram is one of few cricketers to adorn the mm. front the front cover of uh, Time magazine. He yes. did a lot. Of, he did a lot of work to promote, you know, the uh, diabetes in terms of you know essentially how to safeguard against getting it and then 
what you do yeah, when, yeah. when you get it. So that was, um, you know, that must have been a huge mortality moment for, for well, it is for anybody. But when you rely on your body for everything, mm. when you rely on yeah, your yeah. body for your your career, for your your profile, for your financial um, might. And that was another thing that came from the book. Wasn't wasn't a rich man, was he? Financially, he played oh. in a, he played in an era where, you know, players weren't getting money, um, for you know required amount of money. But essentially, that was a that must have been um you know a real moment for him and how he got past that. And the other, you know, extraordinary passage. And this is like something out of old Victorian, you know, um, England. You know, he after realizing he had a problem with. Uh, class a an addiction problem with cocaine he ended up in a essentially a well the opposite of the ivy essentially it, <laughs> I don't know, it's something out of the dark ages and to come through that again you know these are these are huge moments in anybody's life and to see them written out in black and white and to for the first time as well never never knew this at all it just adds even more depth to the man and, and the story yeah and it's extraordinary for him to have confronted these these twin plagues in Asia too. I mean, we find it hard enough to adapt to diabetes in the West, but there's tremendous ignorance and superstition around the use of insulin in uh, in Pakistan. Uh, and the, the problem is getting infinitely worse. Um, Wazim has been a, a tireless ambassador for diabetes and, and medication uh, since he retired from the game. You know, his, his, his career is a very good advertisement for the capacity to live with the disease and, and continue to prosper. And you're right about the um the story of the clinic. It's um you know we have a, a, a slightly romantic notions of what uh, of rehabilitation in uh, in in the west. It's a brutal system, an unsparing system and a system that people don't really talk about in uh, where where Wasim comes from. So I think that's it's doubly to his credit that he's been prepared to be as frank as he has. He's angry in this book, isn't he, at times? But I don't think there's any moment he's more angry than with that doctor in that clinic. Um, yeah. Certainly, yeah. Um, even with all the match-fixing allegations, which he addresses, you know, individually as well. Um, and some of the situations he had with his teammates. I mean, there was one situation with he was forced to drop Wakar Yunus and <laughs> it's just like one sentence. It essentially says, and Wakar didn't speak to me for a year afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a man who played with, you know, a team with half a dozen captains in it and probably three other players who might not have been trying. Well, when you, I mean, this is one of the dizzying aspects of it. Uh, it's essentially you can see where you can it's you can see why match fixing can be bred in such situations where you come from a you come from a background where it does not get you does not set you or get you ready for this kind of exposure and attention and this nomad lifestyle where essentially you go from one nameless tournament to another to another to another to another to another faceless hotel rooms different captains and the realization that it's not good enough just to be good. Mm. You know? yes. And yes. And that's it. You've got to also play the game. Um, yes. You need and, lines and, of privilege, that's for sure. That's that's a key part of Pakistani cricket history, is that you know there are dynasties in it. Um, there are lines of, uh, of, uh, of uh, conga lines of supporters behind you. 
uh, you're surrounded by people who want to know you for reasons that are often unclear. It's sometimes difficult to tell who's a friend and, and who's an enemy uh, and who is, who's, who is bona fide. And if that's true now, it was particularly so in the 1990s. I mean, there wasn't even a coach for most of the time that Wasim was playing. Uh, as captain, he kind of served as coach. Uh, and he relied on um, advisors such as Imran, who I think has maintained a considerable influence over, uh, over Wasim's career. And I think has always tended to look after him. But uh, but even Jarvid, who um, who really in some ways was the man who discovered Wasim, became towards the end of his career a rival who was pursuing his own agenda, was was fighting for the preservation of his own career, and made it very uncomfortable for Wasim when he first took over the Pakistan captaincy. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. One part of the book that made me uncomfortable, and it goes back a little bit to what I was saying at the start of the uh, of our interview, was you used a word earlier in this interview, which I'll have to bleep out. I won't be able to use it. Um, but it's a word that Wazim uses, and I and we should be able to use it. And if Wazim used it, he, it we could use it. And it's all we live in a very confusing world. But essentially, he uses this word um, when referring back to series played in England. Mm. Pakistan were getting reverse swing. Uh, Wazim was, Wakar was, and Wakar was bowling at about 93 miles an hour and breaking yeah. toes as much as he was breaking wickets. And the English press um, called them cheats. They were referred to as cheats. I was living, obviously, I was living in England at the time. I remember the newspaper coverage. Cheats. They were cheating. Because mm. if they could do it, why couldn't our boys do it? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you 
We talk about the anger in this book at times. There's anger there as well from Wazoom. And I wonder what he was like when he was reflecting back on that when we when you were chatting. Did you get a sense that he's he felt that not just the treatment of the of the press, but also from the England team, he picks out the situation with Alan Lamb, the, tr- the, mm. the court case, and the way that there was quite an unhealthy relationship between some of the players and the press and stories would be leaked through. It seemed like he still finds it distasteful to look back on even now. Look, I think the anger has probably sort of curdled into chagrin and a degree of sort of ironic detachment. Um, he certainly jokes consistently about how what, in the 1992 was ball tampering <laughs> gradually became reverse swing when England became good at it. Uh, it's a fact of life. I, I mean, I think I, I, Wasim is not naive. He understands the way in which the world works. And I wouldn't want him to, uh, to be seen as um, uh, being disrespectful of English cricket culture. In some respects, English cricket culture was a great solace to him, a great consolation uh, throughout all the travails of his career with Pakistan, when he stepped back into the Lancashire dressing room, as he did for, for 10 years, uh, he actually feels that was the way to play the game. He enjoyed his cricket with Lancashire probably far more than he did playing test and international cricket. Absolutely. And it almost sounds like a relief when he can go back and just play cricket, doesn't it? He can yeah. just get on with being a cricketer, living in a country where he, he felt essentially like every move wasn't being watched where he was treated as an equal, where he didn't have to worry about politics. Um, And he still is, John, you know, very unusually, he is a man who hasn't played for Lancashire since 1998, but he still spends two or three months of the year in Manchester. You know, his roots are deep. There probably isn't an international cricketer who has deeper roots in England so long after they actually took the field. Farouk engineer, maybe. Yeah. Perhaps and, and probably Clive Lloyd too, but um, yeah, all, he, in Lan- um, all in Lancashire as well. Funny enough, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, look, yeah, I mean, and of course, his um, his kids were born. One of them was born in um, in uh, in in Ireland, um, and the other one was born in um, in England. And you know, he's very proud of his association with Lancashire. He still has very very close ties with uh, guys like Athers, um, guys like Neil Fairbrother. Um, speaks very, very nostalgically of the Lancashire dressing room in the time that he played. Well, and, and you know, we were talking about his first wife, Huma. She actually foresaw Brexit by about 20 years, didn't she? She did, didn't she? <laughs> very shrewd. Just another example of her, of her intense security. She decided that there was just the possibility that England might leave <laughs> the EU. So she had her, her, one of her sons born in Ireland to ensure he had a Crazy. European passport. Um, look, we can't. It, I, I would. I will hope that those listening to this show don't feel that the book is is an angry one or a negative one, or, because despite these huge topics, there's still the love of cricket that pervades all. And you know, the the biggest love of all mm. is Imran Khan for Wazi yeah. Mac. Yeah. No, yeah. I've heard anecdotal stories about players that have entered the Pakistani dressing room under captains like Sally Malik and whatever. And you can see when a hierarchical society, you can see how important it is to walk into a dressing room, you know, whether you've got a good captain or a bad captain. And Imran yeah, Khan, yeah. Well, he's not good, is he? He was a god. Um, and he was he was part of what undoubtedly will always be Wazoom's highlight 
and that is to win the World Cup in Melbourne in, in 1992. Well, he's still part of um, of Wasim's life. You know, they probably talk every two or three days. Uh, Wasim still refers to him as skipper, um, still turns to him for advice. And when he's describing his relationship, he, he sort of seems to slip back slightly into the role of protege still, despite, you know, now being a man in his mid-50s. It was a fascinating experience to speak to Imran while I was doing this book. Um, he's, as you can imagine, quite a hard man to get a hold of. Uh, and I made multiple, multiple attempts uh, fruitlessly. And then one day Wasim rang me and he said, um, Imran will be on this number at 10 o'clock Pakistan time tonight. Call it. I said, right, that's exactly what I'm going to do. It was, in fact, three o'clock in the morning Australian time. But I duly rang it. It duly rang out. And I was just about to go to bed. The text comes through, call me back in an hour. It was actually the night that um, Imran's party won the election in the Punjab earlier this year. So he had back-to-back party meetings before he spoke to me. But the minute that his voice came on the phone, it, it was it was like being addressed by, well, God. He's <laughs> this magnificent rich Pakistani voice with this kind of Oxford undertone, very, very considered, very thoughtful. And actually, he wasn't slumming it. He he wasn't sort of, uh, he wasn't doing this lightheartedly. He slipped back immediately into the role of being Wasim's captain and Wasim's coach and Wasim's guru and talked about him very frankly, very affectionately, but uh, but but also strangely sternly, and, and you can imagine what it would be like to be a young Wasim in the presence of, uh, of of Imran. He's got a voice that just commands attention, a presence even on the phone that uh, that makes you feel like you're in the um, in the presence of of someone superior, someone important. But that in itself, in reverse, tells you how great a person and a cricketer, Wazi Makram, was yeah. and is, doesn't it? Because yes. it, I imagine these requests will be going to Imran Khan yes. every day. And yet yes. he set out time to speak to you about yes. Wazi Makram. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he, he's quite open by saying uh, Imran is the most gifted, naturally gifted player he's ever seen. And I, it's not a throwaway line for, from Imran Khan. He doesn't say things like that. Um, off the top of his head. He's had a good long think about it. Um, he said basically that Wasim's technique was so good, so natural, so innate, so untutored, that there was almost no need to change it, really. All he needed to do was reinforce ideas like the ethic of hard work, to work on particular skills like the Yorker or reverse swing. But the basic technique did not change for the duration of Wasim's career, despite the uh, the entropy of the of, of the body, you know the, the steady deterioration of the body, you look at Wasim's action at the start of his career. It's not that much different to the action that he had at the end of his career, and very few cricketers can say that. Did you ever get a sense from Wasim that he was in any way disappointed with his career? Do you, do you did you get an impression that he he maybe looks at the modern day more you know protected professional and feels what if 
what if I could have played in this time? No, that never came up. I can honestly say that. Um, you do get that. You're quite right from uh, fr- from some players. They wish they could have enjoyed the, the commercial rewards that they uh, that they have today. I'm sure Wasim would have fancied his chances as a T20 player. He had the perfect body of skills to uh, succeed in that game. I, I think probably the one thing that he does regret is the end of his career, which came abruptly uh, and perhaps before he was ready. But then again, maybe he would never have been ready. That's that's the nature of great players. They um, they have such self-belief. They find it difficult to believe when, when their time is over. Pakistan cricket retired him rather than the other way around. And I think there is a, there's a degree of slight bitterness there. But he's also you know, hugely popular among the generation of cricketers that he played with. As you say, I went around casting around for, for opinions on, on Wasim from uh, any number of his contemporaries, and they came openly and generously and fulsomely uh, and eagerly, in fact. You know, cricketers love Wasim Akram. He's just a fantastic cricketer. He's, he's, he, is a, he is a cricketer to be a fan of as well as a, as a rival of. I think everyone who played against him uh, appreciated his skills and his um, and his uh, esprit de corps and his um, and his persona too. There's a really interesting line in there from Justin Langer, who's one of the people who um, who I approached, and Justin said one of the things about Wasim was it was a little bit difficult to get into the contest against him because he knew he was such a nice man, because he knew he was such a gentleman. And that's something I don't think I've ever heard Justin Langer say about in any context that it was difficult to get into the contest. He was born in the contest, but somehow he actually found it a little bit difficult to uh, to, to to shape up against Waz because he liked him so much. Although there was there was one funny story. Um, Wasim, when I when I told him that I was approaching JL, um, said. Uh, Ah, oh, that one of that decision at Bell Reeve in 1999. He smashed it. And uh, when uh, JL sent me his tribute to Wasim, he actually put on the end of the message and tell Wasim, I smashed it. <laughs> well, there's another thing I'm going to have to bleep out, but I'll, uh, I'll yeah, certainly get the message in. Um, well, uh, it's an absolutely wonderful book. Um, you know, I have. I only have a couple of books that I keep on my bedside table at all times. I've got a, a book by David Frith, which is like a hundred years of the ashes. And yeah. I, on occasion when sleep isn't coming natu- naturally or it's hard to come by and I know I'm not going to wake my wife up. I, I'll sometimes just flick through that and it just gives me a renewed sense of purpose. And then uh, there's your book on Ward, which is a, a beautifully written book. And it's just, it's just it's almost like, a little uh, security blanket. I've just got it there. And <laughs> I think I think this book's going to be alongside it. Uh, there's a line at the end, uh, towards the end of it. Pakistanis are notorious for pulling themselves apart. I'm not sure they get enough credit for putting themselves back together. And I yeah. think I think that's that's a beautiful way of looking at things. And you know, once again, they 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 nearly did it, didn't they? Pakistan nearly did it. Shaheen Afridi injury and and win the side and and win the toss and they they could have done it at the MCG thirty years after they did it for the first time. We were closely studying the nineteen ninety two parallelometer here, uh, 
it seemed uncanny that uh, that I should have been involved with Wazim on this book and, and retrieving these memories at the time that Pakistan was was going so deep into uh, the T20 tournament despite their early poor form. But that's part of the romance and part of the part of the attraction of doing this book was to get you know the inside view of Pakistan cricket. It's such an enigma to uh, to, to those of us looking on from afar. So when Wasim approached me, I thought, well, I didn't have to think twice. A, because he's a great cricketer, and B, because he's the perfect tour guide for uh, for one of the most fascinating crickets um, played anywhere in the world, a riddle wrapped inside a mystery inside an enigma. Well, the mystery and the enigma is uh, slightly easier to de- decode after reading Sultan, a memoir, Wasim Akram with Gideon Haig. Gideon, it's late. What's the score, by the way? I'd stop watching. <laughs> what a go. I barely started, actually. Well, in about 20 years' time, when you're asked to write, I don't know, who's playing today? Moeen Ali's book. He might mention this. <laughs> James Vince, my time, struggle. Always, always a pleasure to chat. And, uh, yeah, well done on the book. It's, uh, it's a triumph. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 